It is good to be together again. Uh, those of you here in the room, certainly. Those of you that are at home, uh, we're blessed to have you joining us. And uh, today we're going to be in the book of Acts. So you can go ahead and turn there once more, as we have been now for maybe close to seven or eight weeks. Today we'll pick back up in Acts chapter 4, uh, the place we left off, which is the middle of this prayer meeting, an impromptu prayer meeting. People gathering together, they're hearing the report, and they say to themselves, well, let's pray about this. And so they went right into a time of prayer. Let, let's do that ourselves. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to come together. We thank you for the privilege of the Word of God, Lord, to have in each of our possession. And we think of those that uh, have gone before us and the sacrifices that were made, sometimes even of their lives, that we might have the Word of God. Lord, we are, uh, we're privileged, we're grateful. Lord, teach us to honor it as it reveals you to us. We pray today that you would open up our hearts to receive. Lord, that uh, there's things that are going on. We're busy people. Uh, our hearts, our minds are cluttered with a lot of stuff. But right now, we want to come, Lord, into your presence. We want to sit before you and we want to hear from you. And so we ask that you would do that this morning. Lord, that you'd bless us. And we pray in Jesus' name, our prayer. Amen. Amen. Well, as I said, we're back in Acts chapter 4. Uh, in Acts chapter 4, Acts chapter 3, going together, uh, a story continues that began with Peter and John going into the temple, encountering this lame man, uh, led by the Lord, saying to this lame man to rise uh, and to be healed. The man was, he rose up and he was healed. Uh, and obviously the commotion that came, which presented Peter and John an opportunity, first to testify to all of the, the people that were just interested. What's going on? How did this guy get healed? Where did this come from? And Peter and John had the opportunity to tell about Jesus and how Jesus Christ had been raised from the dead, and because of that resurrection, this man was standing before them healed. Of course, we also saw how others came, the, the religious leaders, didn't really like what was going on. Who gave you the right to teach? We're the authorities around here, and these things. And they arrested Peter, can you believe it, and John, and maybe even the, the man that got healed. Put him on trial, brought him before the Supreme Court of Israel at that time, the Sanhedrin and then eventually commanded them, you may not speak or teach about this man. Catch that. The teaching part is the public thing. All right, I, I hear what you're saying. They said, you may not even talk about him any longer. In your private little meetings, you know, you pray before, none of that. We're done with this Jesus. We put him to death, and Peter and John smirked, but he's not dead. He, he was raised again. How could we not? They said, look, we know what you've told us to do. A little later, they're going to have to say, but you're going to have to be a judge. Should we obey you or should we obey God? How can we not proclaim what Jesus Christ has done in our lives and that he has been raised from the dead? And of course, as I said, uh, the Sanhedrin, the, the court of the day, they released them with those instructions. Don't talk about Jesus anymore. And then they sent them on their way. And so they immediately go, we learned this last week, they immediately go and they find their friends. They find a place where they will have sort of a kindred spirit with them. Who is Jesus? And is it worth it being arrested for being a follower of this man? And they found a group of friends that would have said, of course it's worth it. We must proclaim boldly what God has done through his son, which he sent into the world. 
and he began to talk to them. And you can imagine the circumstances scenario where you know they, they come to the door and the people are like, where were you? What happened? We heard this. And Peter and John, they begin to answer all of their questions and they finally come to this place, as I said, where they say, let's pray together about this, which brings us to where we left off. Look at verse 23, Acts chapter 4. It says, now when they were released, they went to their friends. They reported what the chief priest and the elders had said to them. And then they went to prayer. They had just been persecuted, arrested, put in jail by the same people that put Jesus to death. So these people had a power. They had an influence in that particular society. That's what could have happened to Peter and John themselves. It didn't, but that certainly could have. And rather than strategizing, rather than coming up with a plan, rather than figure out what are we going to do here, maybe we can go to a new city where we'll be safe and live in our little commune by ourselves where no one will bother us, they say, let's pray. Let's go before the Lord. Let's present this matter to the Lord and see what the Lord would have for us. Now, in our last study, we looked at a portion of that prayer. We looked at verses 29 and 30. So read that again with me. It says, Now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your servant, your holy servant, Jesus. Now, there's more to their prayer. This is the portion of their prayer. And I spent a little time considering this portion last week. I'll remind you of some of the things we learned. Three things that we see in this particular prayer. The first is that they were resigning themselves to the will of God in their lives. You'll notice there in verse 29, they said, and Lord, look upon their threats. They knew that the threats might come. They didn't tell God, Lord, take them away, or we're done talking about you, or any of these types of things. They just simply said, Lord, they're threatening us see that. They submitted themselves, they resigned themselves to the will of God in their lives, and they asked that God would give them the courage to obey, the courage to continue to go on. You'll see there it says, grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with boldness. Now, the threats would stop if they stopped speaking God's word, but they couldn't stop speaking God's word, despite being instructed to do so. And so they don't ask God to take the threats away, the persecution away. We're going to continue to obey you, Lord. You told us to be your witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And that's what we're going to continue to do, despite what they might do to us. And so the second thing there we see where they bring up this idea of, Lord, give us the courage to obey you. And then the third thing is they say, Lord, and accompany your word. Stretch out your hand with signs and wonders to heal performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And what they're asking for there, as we saw in our last time together, is that God would continue to confirm his support, so to speak, for their ministry. I'm with you in this. I'm going to confirm that I'm with you in this. And we pray those things for ourselves. I hope you do. I hope that's your prayer for us as a body of believers. And I hope it's your prayer for you individually and maybe for your family as well that you would have the courage to obey God's law, uh, law, what God is telling you to do, that you would resign yourself to his will in your life, and then finally that God would confirm that he's working through you with miracles in your life, being able to communicate the gospel in a way that people respond, seeing fruit. That's what all that is about that we're seeing there. So that's a portion of their prayer, but there's, there's a little bit more to their prayer. We didn't dig all into it for time the last time we were together. So let's go back and read it. I'll pick up again in verse 23. It says, now when they were released, 
They went to their friends. They reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, the one who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Verse 29, And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Peter and John, let out of jail, go back to their friends, find their friends. I, again, I can't imagine, I think we could all imagine the situation. We can see these two men coming to the door. We can see them coming in. They were probably, we see this later on in the book of Acts, they were probably praying for Peter and John that they would be saved, that they would be released. And there they are at the door. And they bring them in, and the questions just start to fly. What did they say? What did it feel like? Were you nervous? Were you afraid? Did you ever think of not saying something? All these kinds of questions are coming forth. And as verse 23 say, Peter and John sort of report the whole scenario that went down. And then their next response, as I said, is to pray. It's to pray. Many times I find in my life, and I'm suspecting that a lot of you do as well, the last thing I think to do is to pray. I try and figure everything out in my own senses, and I finally get to that place where I'm saying, well, what else is there to do but pray? That's the first thing that we should be doing. We should be people about prayer. And yet it becomes uh, almost like an afterthought. There's nothing else I can do but pray. These guys here, they don't strategize about this. Many times as churches, as families, people that want to reach people, we hold our strategy sessions. All right, how are we going to convince this crowd, this community, this nation, this world, how are we going to convince them to become Christians? Well, you can't. You can't strategize the gospel going forth. They don't begin to draw up plans for how to combat the corrupt and violent influence of the government which they find themselves in. They're not forming political action committees and so that they can change their country to be what they want their country to be, this Christian country, this godly country. Rather, they pray. And this is a wonderful prayer, and I think we can glean a lot of wisdom for how they approach the circumstances they're facing by looking at their prayer. Now, in our study of the book of Acts so far, we've already seen Peter preach, essentially, on three occasions. And in each one of those occasions, we sort of broke down his sermon, we'll call it a sermon, so that we could learn some lessons. Look how Peter addresses his crowd. Look where he takes the argument. And we looked at that so that we could learn. I think we could do the same thing with this prayer. We could look at this prayer that this group of believers are praying, and we can learn valuable lessons about how we can be praying as well. So in verse 24, notice it says, and they lifted their voices together. Now, in the original language, the word voices is actually written as their voice. 
Some of the older versions, King James Version, the New King James Version, which is more modern of the, of the King James, they demonstrate that by just putting the word voice there. They lifted their voice together. There was a group of them, but they prayed with one voice. They prayed with one heart. They prayed with one mind, one purpose. At the addition of that word together really nails that down. They lifted their voice together, singular as opposed to plural. They were together in their prayer. Later on, it's going to describe how they were with one heart and with one soul, I think it says, or one heart with one mind. They were unified and united in prayer. And so Peter and John had just come in. They learned all the information that they had learned, and they were united in prayer about this particular subject. One of the things that we're going to see in the book of Acts is the Lord begins to create a divide between the Jewish people and the Christians, so to speak. Now, we know that the, the, the Christian faith is a sect, and it was a sect of the Jewish faith initially. And so you look in the first century, in the time of Jesus and the book of Acts, and you had the people like the Pharisees, you had the Sadducees, you know those names, we see little uh, references to another group of Jews that were called the Essenes. And then there was a group of Jews that followed Jesus. They were members of what was called the way. We would refer to them as Christians. The vast majority of them during the time of Jesus and in the early chapters of the book of Acts were Jewish people. But what the Lord is beginning to do in the book of Acts is separate the Christians from those that were non-Christians or not Christians, those that named Christ and recognized that Jesus was the Messiah and those that did not see that that was the case. He's creating this line of demarcation. And so we see in this passage, where do Peter and John go when rejected by the Jewish leaders? They go to their friends. They go to the believers, those that they are united in heart and in mind with. And they pray with them. And they begin their prayer the, in verse 24, first few words in the prayer, by reminding themselves of who it is that they're praying to. Who are they servants of? They say, Sovereign Lord. That's how they begin their prayer, Sovereign Lord. So important that we have a proper respect for who the Lord is in our lives. You know, we come from a... a a shtick, if you will. I don't know if that's the right word, but you know, we come from sort of a, a segment of the faith that really emphasizes our personal relationship with Jesus. And I'm glad that we do. I certainly don't want to be in an environment, I certainly don't want to have a relationship with God where he is some distant God that I can have no interaction with, no contact with. At the same time, I think we need to be very, very careful. The Lord above is not our pal. He's not our chum. He's not our good buddy. And we need to be careful in the way that we interact with him, the way we address him. They begin by saying, Sovereign Lord. Now, in the New Testament, the word Lord is used quite often uh, in the New Testament. Interesting, the word that is typically used is the word kurios in the Greek, K-U-R-I-O-S. That's not the word that is used in this particular instance. In this particular instance, the word that is used is where we get the English word despot. It's D-E-S-P-O-T-E-S, despotes, or something like that. That sounds more Spanish. But it's where we get the English word despot. It's the reason why in our versions, they have added the word sovereign before Lord. Or maybe in some of your versions, it says absolute Lord or something like that. 
There's a, a specific word that is used here than the standard word for Lord that we find in the New Testament. This word, despotes, it means a slave owner or it means an absolute ruler. And we're familiar, we've studied history and even in the world today, we know what a despot is. We know that absolute ruler and because he's a human ruler, she's a human ruler, there's going, to become, there's going to be corruption that is associated with it. Obviously, with the holy God, the corruption, the sin is not going to follow. But catch the word that is being said. Think about a despot nation. You better not question that ruler or you'll end up dead. Absolute, complete, total power and authority. That's how they begin their prayer. Sovereign Lord the one with absolute, complete, and total authority. Now, certainly, total authority over their lives. They had submitted themselves to the lordship of God in their lives, of Christ in their lives. But you'll notice what they go on to say in their prayer. It's not just their lives that he's absolute ruler over. And it's not just the things in their lives that he has absolute control over. Notice how they go on to say uh, here, sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth, and the sea, and everything that is in them. He's the one that has created all things in heaven, all things on the earth, all things that are in the sea, everything that is found in those places, he is the creator, sovereign Lord over. So sovereign over the birds, sovereign over humanity, sovereign over the animals, sovereign over the sea creature, all things are submitted to him and his will. That's how they begin their prayer. They begin by reminding themselves of who it is they're speaking to. They begin their prayer with an address to the God that reflects an acknowledgement of his sovereign control over all things, including this persecution that their friends just went through. They begin their prayer by acknowledging, Lord, you're sovereign. None of this is outside of your control. And none of this is outside of your will. You're in complete control of all these things, even this new persecution that was coming against them. Now, on the surface, you and I, perhaps in that circumstance, maybe in our day, we would look at an event like that, things like that. Peter and John, all they wanted to do was to go and worship. They wanted to go into the temple in the afternoon, say some prayers, leave there. They had dinner plans afterwards. That's all they wanted to do. And then all of this happened. Things are spinning out of control. This is crazy. God, where are you? What's going on here? But with how they begin their prayer is by saying that nothing is outside of the control of our sovereign Lord. That knowledge is a knowledge I think we should each have. That knowledge secures for us an immediate peace regarding the circumstances. Lord, I don't understand, but I know you do. I know none of this happened by accident. I can trust you in this. You'll take me through this. You'll get me to the other side of this. That knowledge brings an immediate peace and, immediate, and an immediate security in the midst of any circumstance that we might face. And it was the, that which brought peace and security to these early disciples here. Even though their good friends have just been arrested and threatened, you do it again, you're dead, or something to that effect. 
the prayer goes on. In verse 25, notice, they begin to quote scripture to the Lord. They say, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? Now, there's a, a quick little aside there. Who wrote those words? Well, they tell us David did. But did those words just come from David's mind? Did it just come from his heart, something he had been thinking through? No, they were inspired by the Holy Spirit. That's our understanding of the scripture. Ultimately, the Holy Spirit is the author who used human vessels as he moved amongst them. And so they acknowledge that they recognize that who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage? Why did the peoples plot in vain? Now, when we were looking at the various sermons that Peter preached, three of them already in the first couple of chapters, three chapters of Acts, one of the things we took notice of is how prevalent the word of God permeated those sermons. The sermon on the day of Pentecost, I recall, I think it had 26 verses. 14 of the verses were direct quotes from the Old Testament. So more than half of the sermon, and maybe there was more that he said that's not recorded for us, but at least for what is recorded to us, more than half of it is Bible. They were Bible heavy. You didn't come here to see me talk or tell stories or something like that. Give us the Bible. And that's what Peter did on that day of Pentecost in each of his sermons. Interesting thing, now we see this first prayer that is recorded, this lengthy prayer that is recording, and it too is Bible heavy. So not just talking about, Lord, I really feel this, and Lord, I really would like that. They're quoting the Bible to the Lord, the author of the scriptures. It's hard to go wrong when you're speaking the word, and in this case, praying the word. They're praying the word. They're giving it back to the Lord. James Montgomery Boyce, he said this. He said, prayer is our talking to God. The scriptures are God's talking to us, and the two should always go together. You pray in a right way when you pray scripturally. You study the scriptures in a right way when you study them prayerfully. And these believers, they found themselves talking to God in God's own words. Again, it's hard to go wrong when you're speaking the scripture. And so these believers, they call to mind one of those passages of scripture that David wrote. It comes from Psalm 2. It begins, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? Now, during our studies, uh, in, mostly in the... Um, in the Minor Prophets, I had made repeated mention to what are called Messianic Psalms. They're Old Testament Psalms that meant something to the, the person that was writing them. They were conveying their heart as the Holy Spirit moved them. But we know that the Holy Spirit had a greater purpose with that Psalm as well. And that in that Psalm, he also spoke of the coming Messiah. Psalm 2 is one of those Psalms. Psalm 2 is the record of human rebellion against God. Every one of us in this room has and does rebel against God and his will for our lives. It's what it means to be a human. All of humanity rebels against the Lord. And as we've come to know Christ and we're trying to honor him and walk in his ways, hopefully less and less we're saying, no, God, I want to do what I want to do. But that is our natural. That's who we are. We are rebellious against the Lord. And what Psalm 2 is, it's a record of humanity's rebellion against the Lord and God's response to that rebellion. I encourage you to read it at some point in time this week. But the opening verses of Psalm 2, it reads this way. It sounds familiar because it's what the, 
the people in Acts there quoted. It says, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth, they set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So the people are saying to, against the Lord and against his anointed, the word anointed refers to his Messiah, let us burst their bonds. This God will not tell me what to do. He's not going to control me or lead me or make me do anything. That's what the nations of the earth are saying. Again, verse 1, the nations rage and the people's plot, David would say, but they do so in vain. Now, the word for rage there, I think a, a picture that is helpful is it, it was a word that was used to describe when a, a person would try to control a horse, for instance. And so they want to get on that particular horse and they want to, you know, we're going to go take a nice little ride together here. And the horse is like, I don't want anybody on me. And it starts to shake and kick and all of that kind of stuff. But eventually, and that's this idea of this word rage here, sort of kicking against that which wants to bring it into submission. But eventually the, the person that's going to ride that horse will put the reins on that horse, will control that horse. And eventually that horse is going to submit and is going to go where it needs to go. David says, why do the nations rage? Why do they fight? Why do they act as if they're not going to do what they're being told to do? Going their own direction. Because eventually the restraints of the reins become too much for that horse. And it does ultimately submit. So David here, inspired by the Holy Spirit, he goes on. He says, the kings of the earth and the rulers of the world, they take counsel. Take counsel. That means they plot. They scheme. They have a little meeting. They get back in their room. Okay, God wants us to do this, and he's a pretty powerful God. You know, how are we going to overcome him? They plot. They scheme against the Lord and against his anointed, against his Messiah. And there in their little meeting, their little cabal that they have, they determine that they're not going to be ruled over by anybody else, not even the Lord, the sovereign ruler of all things, and certainly not by his chosen one. And so together, they have a meeting. They put it up on the whiteboard. They came out. They all agree. We are going to throw off the bonds of the Lord. We're going to cast away his restraints, his cords. That's what the kings of the earth were doing in David's day, which he wrote about and God used in an inspired way. It's what they did during the time of Christ. We will not have this man rule over us, they say, they said. They did it in the time of Christ, and here they are now doing it with Peter and John. Remember, they instructed them, you may not preach or speak in this man's name any longer. But back in Psalm chapter 2, verse 4, notice the Lord's response. It says, he who sits on the, in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. That sounds kind of rude there, but it's one of those situations where here are these little people, they remind me of like that little dog barking, and the big Rottweiler, you know, is there like, who are you barking at? You know, and he's, <laughs> he's not angry with him, he's not mad at him necessarily, because he's a cute little yapper or whatever. But he doesn't take it serious at all. This little guy's not going to hurt me in any way. And that's how the Lord responds to the nations deciding nobody's going to tell me what to do. Certainly no God, certainly no anointed one, no Messiah. And the Lord, 
you had any idea who you were talking to. It says, the Lord laughs. The one who sits in the heavens holds them in derision. Here they are preparing to go to war against the almighty God. And God responds with, with a chuckle. Men and women throughout history have taken their defiant stand against God. At some point in your life, you probably did as well. I'm going to do what I want to do. Tired of somebody else telling me what to do. But the Lord will always prevail, as he probably did in many of our hearts in this room, didn't he? When he finally broke us and he said, would you stop? Would you just stop and allow me to direct you, allow me to lead you, allow me to guide you? And you submitted yourself, you gave yourself to the Lord, only to discover, oh my gosh, why did I wait so many years for this? Why did I push against this? Why did I fight against this? The Lord will prevail. Now, back in the book of Acts, chapter 4, these early Christians, watch how they continue. They're continuing to quote verse 26, the psalm. They say, the kings of the earth set themselves, the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and his anointed. All right, period. That's the end of, or comma. That's the end of the psalm. Then they make connection. They say, for truly in this city, where are they? The easy one. It's not a hard one. They're in Jerusalem. All right, they're still there in Jerusalem. Maybe it was a hard one. Um, he says, for truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. Remember, the anointed one is the Messiah. They're acknowledging Jesus to be the Messiah. They say, they were gathered together against your Messiah, both Herod and Pontius Pilate. So Herod was sort of the the Jewish go-between between the Jews who were controlled and the Romans who controlled them. And then Pontius Pilate was the Roman ruler and of the Gentiles. And so both the Gentiles and the Jews rejected, went to war against the Lord's Holy One, he says, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan has predestined to take place. I broke that up. Let me reread it straight through. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So as we're trying to learn lessons from this prayer, I want you to notice this. They're doing what I think is a really valuable tool for us to live our lives as Christians as we walk out the rest of our days here on the earth. And that is this. They are interpreting their present circumstances through the lens of Scripture. They're interpreting their present circumstances through the lens of Scripture. So why are the powers that be exercising wrath against them? Why would the powers that be put them in jail? Why would they arrest them, hold them in custody, threaten them? Tell them they can't go on and do these things anymore. Why would they do that? Well, because the answer is, as we go back in our Bibles, the answer is that's what the powers that be have always done. The powers that be are perpetually seeking to exercise their power and authority against the Lord and against his anointed. So again, that's what they did in David's day. That's what they did in Jesus's day. And now that's what they're doing in Peter and John's day and in the early uh, church's day. So based on their study of God's word, 
these early Christians, they recognized the similarity of their situation with the situations of those people of faith that have come before them. And that would give them, that gives them a perspective. A lot of times we think like we're the first people that have ever encountered certain things in our lives. Maybe the specifics of it, but on the broad basis, this has all happened before. It's happened to the Lord's children before. So they go back, they get this perspective from the word of God, and then they apply the words of the word of God to their own circumstances, showing that they understood that what happened in their lives, they understand what happens in their lives based on what the Bible says about those things. So from Psalm 2, they understand that they should expect this sort of opposition. You as a Christian, when someone gives you a hard time for your faith, and they said to just, you know, kind of turn it on you, like turn the, their wrath, so to speak, on you, and you become sort of the butt of the jokes in the workroom or whatever it might be, and people want to persecute you for your faith for no particular reason. You're like, what, why are we doing this? I don't understand. Have I hurt you? Have I bothered you? Have I been a problem to you? And yet now all of a sudden you want to turn sort of your anger against me? We're reminded of what Jesus said. In this world, you're going to have trouble. They're going to, they persecuted you, they're going to persecute me. And it all, now it all makes sense. Oh, I get it. I get it, Lord. We go to the scripture to find sort of clarity for the circumstances that we're facing. That's what these guys are doing here. Maybe one of the first lessons that we can see is to see our circumstances in the light of God's word. Why is your life not perfect? Why are there difficulties in your life? You're a good person, right? Relatively speaking, I guess, perhaps. You're a good person. So why do bad things happen to you? You know, the, there's a book or something out there. Why do bad things happen to good people? Why do good things happen to bad people? Even that could be a book that is out there. Well, you've read your Bible. Because this earth is not heaven. That's why there's difficulties. That's why there's problems. That's why there's trouble. You don't have to go to some counseling session and pay someone a bunch of money. Just go to your Bible. I get it. That's why I have difficulty. Okay, Lord, I'm not, no longer going to approach my life trying to avoid all difficulties and thinking that somehow you're jipping me here on this earth. Instead, I'm going to approach it. Lord, how would you have me to live in this world of difficulties? It changes everything, doesn't it? By bringing it into the con your life into the context of the word of God. That's what these guys do here. They ground their prayers according to the truth of God's word. A lot of times we pray, I'm just going to pray what I feel. I'm just going to pray what I'm thinking right now. I'm just going to be completely honest here. And we think, because we think it, because we feel it, that it's truth. We have to bring our thoughts and our feelings into the submission, into submission to the word of God. Now, I'm not saying you can't be honest with God in your prayer. But please don't walk away thinking God's got to change his thinking to accommodate you. You need to change your thinking to accommodate him. And how do you know what God's thinking? The word of God. Psalm 2. So Psalm 2 is a psalm that expresses complete confidence in the Lord. And so it, complete confidence in his coming victory. So it's a perfect scripture for these guys that now the religious leaders, the powers that be, have turned their sights on, want to go to war against them. Psalm 2 is a perfect place for them to go to remind themselves, 
The Lord is the one that's going to win all of this. None of these things are outside of the predestined plan of God. Look at verse 28 in Acts chapter 4. It said, you know, these things happened to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So despite the fact that the heat was being turned up on Peter, on John, on the early church, these guys knew this wasn't happening outside of the plan of the Lord. The Lord knew all along. As a matter of fact, the Lord's, his hand is on this to accomplish his purposes. Now, I love verse 29, just the, the opening couple of words. I love this little section here. They say, and now, Lord, that's how they continue their prayer. We're being persecuted. They've turned their wrath against us. And they say, and now, Lord. Another way we might say that is, in light of all that has been said, these disciples can pray, and now, Lord, confident that their circumstances were also under the control of the Lord's hand. So the Lord wasn't sovereign over the days of David or the time of Jesus or whatever it might be. He continues to be sovereign over their lives as well. So now they can say, Lord, in our circumstances, and now, Lord, show yourself strong, show yourself sovereign. We submit ourselves to your plan. And now, Lord, I really think it's great. I don't know if you're feeling it, but I, I am. Um, he's the sovereign Lord. So what's going on in our lives? Global pandemics. Will it ever end? You remember where we were about a year ago? You know, this, it had started. I remember walking my dog thinking like, I can't believe this. This is like really... Because you forget, you're just walking your dog like you did all the other time. And all of a sudden, you're like, I can't go anywhere. I'm sorry. I have to go home to my prison when I'm done here. And I can't go anywhere until they give me permission or whatever it might be. Global pandemics. Will my family get it? Will it affect us? Will it impact us? Will I die? Will my father die uh, who's older? Other people that I care for, will they um, succumb to this? It seems like everybody is. Remember the uncertainty of those times? God was still sovereign even in those times, so that we could rest in him. Failing economies. Do you remember when that happened? I like to look at the stock market. Just, I don't have much in the stock market, but I just sort of like to watch the numbers go up and down. Remember the numbers were dropping 2,000 points a day? You'd get your little 401 retirement thing. Congratulations, you lost 20% of your value. And, you, and you're like, oh my gosh, I'm going to freak out. Or you can say, oh, well, how about that? I guess I'm moving in with my kids when I retire. You know, and, and you just say, the Lord is the Lord. He is sovereign. Global pandemics, failing economies, social and political upheaval, which we saw during this last year. Are you going to go down to the rally? Are you going to go down and you're going to do this? And are they going to, that group that's going to come, are they going to burn down this and that? Remember all the upheaval? In our society, all of that is under his control. Something that goes way beyond this last year, and it will go way beyond this last year, death, sickness, people that are ailing, people that are aging and growing old, you. Those things are going to come our way if the Lord allows us to continue to live out our days. We're all going to come to the end of our days. And we're probably going to be sick in the process of getting to the end of our days. But even in that uncertainty, the Lord is sovereign. Amen? And we remind ourselves of this truth here. 
All things are under his control. And now, Lord, they say, in every circumstance we face, we can entrust ourselves to his care. And boy, that brings a lot of peace into our souls, doesn't it? I hope that you can say that as well. In every circumstance we face, we can entrust ourselves to his care. They pray, Lord, look upon their threats, threats against your servants, that we might continue to speak your word with all boldness, they say. So they knew regardless of what might happen to them, maybe they would be arrested again. Maybe they would be killed. Maybe they would be flogged, which I, I think was even worse than the crucifixion just in my mindset. I haven't had either of them happen to me, but it sure seems it. Maybe they would be flogged. Maybe they would be crucified. Maybe they'd be taken out into the desert and stoned, as some of them were uh, later on in the book of Acts. Perhaps these things would come their way. But they say, Lord, give us the boldness to continue to speak your word despite their threats that are coming against us. Now, we learn here the Lord hears their prayer. And he confirms that he hears, heard their prayer, hears their prayer. Notice what it says. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And they continued to speak the word of God with boldness. God confirms, I've heard your prayer. He doesn't do this with regularity in the book of Acts or in our lives. But he confirms that he hears their particular prayer by shaking the place in which they live. So some kind of an earthquake of sorts, the Lord confirms, I'm with you in this. Luke goes on and he continues. Now the next five, six verses here, very similar to what we read at the end of Acts chapter 2. So it might sound somewhat familiar to you. It says in verse 32, Now the full number of those who believed were one heart and one soul. And we know that there was a number approaching 5,000 people. But God had united those people. They were one heart and one soul. No one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. For as many were owners of lands or houses, sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold. And they laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Now the religious leaders might have thought, if we threaten them enough, then these people are going to run for the hills. Everyone will just sort of run to the doors, get out of Jerusalem as quickly as they can, when in reality, rather than dividing them and sending them scattering, it bonded them together. The persecution actually brought them together and bonded them even more, despite the opposition that we might expect would drive them apart from one another. Luke points out, he says that they were, in verse 32, of one heart and one soul, and then he says that they began to share their possessions one with the other. He says there that they had everything in common. And so what we see going on here is because God had touched their lives so deeply, they found it very easy to share all things in common with one another, to meet everyone else's needs. Your needs became my needs. My needs became your needs because we are united together. We are one in this journey together, this walk that we have. So because of the unity they were enjoying, 
notice this, they regarded people as more important than things. So their priority that we have seen in this passage so far is the Lord first, not even their own lives. You keep doing this and something bad is going to happen to you. Well, you're going to have to decide if I should obey God or man. Not even their own lives. First things first, the Lord first, people second, and then material things aren't really even mentioned, a distant third in their lives. And because material things were a distant third, they begin to share with one another. Not out of compulsion. The apostles didn't get up, give some sermon, we're going to need everybody to sell their stuff, bring their money here. It wasn't out of compulsion, it was out of compassion. God began to motivate them to do this because they saw that brother and that sister and that family over there had a need. And they had the ability to meet the need. And because people were more important to them than their material things, they more than willingly sold those material things so they could provide for those particular people. I'll remind you. We're about to draw our time to a close. I'll remind you. Look at verse 31. It says they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And here is the evidence of the filling of the Holy Spirit. It says that they were one in heart and one in soul. These believers were experiencing what God wants for every one of us as believers. And that is the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That's how the Apostle Paul worded it. In the book of Ephesians, when speaking about the work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of believers, the Apostle Paul said this. He says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you, Christians, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling for which you have been called, with all humility, with all gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, and eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That's something that God, when God's Holy Spirit is working in the lives of believers, there's a unity of the Spirit that is created. They prayed that the Lord would give them strength. The Lord filled them with the Holy Spirit. And so what was created amongst them? The unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And so when hearts are set on fire for the Lord, for a love for the Lord, what comes with that is a love for his people as well. And that's what these guys are experiencing. A love that manifests itself in giving to others. Giving of ourselves to others. How can I be of assistance to you? How can I help you? How could I even care enough to stand here and listen to what it is you want to bear to me? Giving of themselves to other people. Giving of their affections. Not just saying, hmm, yeah, wow, that's tough. Let me tell you how my life's hard. Not doing that but rather listening to the other person, engaging with the other person, investing yourself into the other person, calling them the next day, I've been praying for you, how are you doing today? And listening again to the other person. That's the unity of the spirit that God creates when he's working in his children. Giving of our time, and as we see in this passage, giving of our resources. Whatever it may be, in that relationship that is needed as God is leading. Now, people will look at this, particularly in our day, as sort of this popular trend that looks at things like socialism and communism as so beautiful. Oh, it's just so wonderful. If we could all just live and hold hands and sing kumbaya, and, and all we really need is a, a powerful enough entity, like a government, to make that happen, to create that 
to happen in our society? Well, look, we've studied history. We know what, where it leads. We know where it goes. The people that we all give our money to set up in their palaces, and everybody else gets less and less. That's where it goes. Absolute power corrupts absolutely, as the philosopher said, 400 years ago, 500 years ago. We know where it goes. So, some will look at this and say, see, this is what it's teaching. It's teaching communism. It's teaching socialism. I don't believe this, that's what this is teaching. I don't believe that's what the scriptures teach anywhere else that you might turn to. These early believers, they're not modeling any kind of social or economic system. Communism, socialism, even capitalism has nothing to do with those sorts of things. Again, notice nobody is forcing these believers to give up their possessions. They did what they did because love, an internal motivating factor of love, motivated them to gladly share their possession, possessions with those that are in need. Communism, socialism, it always ends up saying, what's yours is mine. And you think, oh, he must be like a passionate capitalist. I don't think I'm a passionate capitalist because what does capitalism always end up saying? It always ends up saying, what's mine is mine. What we see here, the mindset that we see here is what's mine is yours. Sharing with one another, internally motivated by the love of God working in them, first for him, then for others. God is moving in the hearts of these believers to give of themselves, to give of their resources to meet the needs of others. Very, very different from some of the economic systems that exist in our day. These believers are united in the bond of the Holy Spirit. That unity must have moved the heart of Jesus because Jesus prayed this for his disciples. You remember that Jesus, sort of the night before all was about to go down, or maybe a few days before all was about to go down, he was off on his own and he was praying. We call it in our Bibles, maybe your Bible has a heading that says the high priestly prayer, where Jesus went aside and he lifted up a prayer for his disciples, ultimately for you and I. And during that prayer, he said this to his father. He says, I do not ask for these only, those that you know he was discipling in the flesh, but also for those who would believe on me through their word. You know who that is? Raise your hand. That's you. Because of the ministry of Peter, because of the ministry of John, because of the ministry eventually of Paul, and all of those folks, we sit here today. We believe on Jesus because of their ministry, because of their word. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. And what's he ask? That they would all be one, he says. Just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. What's, what's Jesus' prayer for his church? Is that we would be united in the spirit by the bond of peace. That's his desire for us. That's what ultimately is the answer to his prayer. That's what blesses his heart. These disciples here in Acts chapter 4 
were experiencing the very unity for which the Lord prayed. And my prayer, certainly, and I hope it's your prayer, is that so would we. We've been blessed as a church. We really have. We've been a church for about 24 years. I think this is our 24th year uh, of ministry. And God has been so kind and so gracious during that time to bless us with a peace amongst ourselves. You hear churches divided and arguing and fighting and all that stuff. We've never really experienced that as a body of believers. And that doesn't just sort of happen. Like, zap, you get it, but this one over there doesn't get it. It's because, as Paul said in that Ephesians passage, that we would be eager to maintain the unity of the bond of peace. And so when a couple of us have a problem with one another, we talk it out. We deal with it. And if one of us was wrong, we confess that to the other, and the other doesn't say, well, I'll see if you really mean it. I'll watch, you know, where you're going. The other one says, I forgive you, brother. Sister, I've done the same to others. We're eager to maintain the unity of the bond of peace. When we notice in ourselves where we become focused only on ourselves, we say, you know what, Lord, who would you have me to bless today? Who would you have me to look out and to help somebody else instead of expecting everyone to look to my particular needs? And we do that, purposefully we do that, and what that does is it continues to maintain and grow the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. That's why we've been blessed as a body of believers. And I'm so glad that we have been. And I pray that we continue to be. Luke continues in verse 33. Our last verse for the morning. He says, now with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. So they would go out and they would give their testimony. Perhaps they would find a place where lots of people were gathered and talk. More likely, they would be at the, the local shop or the local store. They were getting a falafel, something like that there in the Middle East. And someone says, you seem happy today. Oh, I sure am. Let me tell you. And they would just talk with people about what God was doing in their lives, sharing their testimony. But notice what is at the center of their story. At the center of their story, it says they were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the resurrection, we talk about a lot as we come to Easter, the resurrection was not some ancillary argument that some people in, in the church kind of accepted and some don't. I heard a friend who went to a local church one Easter, the preacher shared you know, the story that is found in the Bible, and then the preacher concluded the message this way. Did the resurrection actually happen? I don't know. How could anybody know? We weren't there. The resurrection is the heart of the gospel. It's the heart of what it means to be a Christian. For if he died, did not rise from the dead, died and did not raise, none of us will. And what we're doing is meaningless. We might as well join the Elks Club or some other club there and just be sort of some social club that hangs out with one another but we preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what that means is any life dead in their sins can be raised back to life in the newness of life. That's what we proclaim. That's what we believe. That's what God has done in my life. That's what he's done in so many of your lives here in this room. These believers, they don't see the resurrection as some side argument. It's the heart of what they teach. And as they went forth to proclaim that, the Lord blessed they're preaching, they're, they're talking, 
and he blessed it with grace. They put his grace upon it. They spoke boldly with great power, it goes on to say there, and God used them. And this little group of people that was 120 when Jesus died would go on and change the world. A little bit later on in the book of Acts, we read some people commenting on the Christians. And they've come to our city as well. These are those that have turned the world upside down. A small little group of people. God blessed them with his grace. He poured out his power as they spoke the word in boldness. Isn't that pretty cool? All right. That's all I got for you. Let's pray. <laughs> Father, we thank you for that reality. And Lord, what we, we love to consider, to meditate on, is that we are the same disciples as those in that first century there. We have the same word. We even have a larger written copy of the word of God in our hands. We have the teaching of the apostles codified for us in the word of God. We have the same Holy Spirit that sends us forth. We have the same unity of the spirit with like-minded brothers and sisters that can encourage us to run our race well, to be bold in the midst of op opposition. And so, Lord, our prayer is that in our day, in our, con our context here, this world in which we live, this community in which you placed us, Father, that truly it could be said of us, man, that group of believers is turning the world upside down. Not for our glory, Lord, but for yours, that the name of Christ would be magnified. And so, Lord, we ask that you would fulfill that prophecy of yours, that if the Son of Man is lifted up, all will be drawn to him. Lord, may our lives lift you up. May our words lift you up. And Lord, would you answer that by drawing people to yourself through us? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.